So good evening, everyone, and thanks for having me. Uh, tonight, we're going to talk about a lot of things about autism, um, from the emotional sensory overload component to, um, you know, fixations, obsessions, and special interests. Um, and, um, you know, uh, OCD, uh, some comorbid anxiety, um, depression issues, mental health issues, and um, puberty and sexuality is going to be a topic at the end we're going to touch on a little bit. We're going to talk about employment. We're going to talk about, you know, how to help someone with autism live their best life. So I hope you're ready for the ride, and uh, we'll begin here and dive into this presentation. The title of tonight's presentation is called Autism Sensory Overloaded by Emotions. Um, first of all, a little bit about me. So I'm Travis Breeding. I'm the author of 20 plus books on autism and mental health. Public speaker, obviously, I like to talk. Um, podcaster, I just started a new podcast called Travis's Best Life. And I'm really living my best life now. I recently, I grew up in Huntington, Indiana, which is up north by Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I recently moved to Fishers, Indiana, to where I am actually um, living my best life and really enjoying my life. So I love it here. I'm meeting a lot of friends and life is good. So I'm living in Fishers, Indiana. I'm an uncle to two nieces. I'm a blogger, more of a blogger nowadays. Uh, I spend a lot of time making videos as opposed to blogging. Um, born in Huntington, Indiana, like I said, just moved to Fishers and I'm living my best life. So the autism diagnosis for me um, happened when I was 22 years old in 2007. Diagnosed by a psychiatrist, uh, immediately continued counseling. And first diagnosed, before I was diagnosed with autism or Asperger's syndrome, I was diagnosed with bipolar and OCD. Um, now we got to talk a little, a little bit about the DSM-4 versus the DSM-5, right? So I was diagnosed in 2007. And when I was diagnosed, we were still using the DSM-4. So my diagnosis was Asperger's syndrome because I was fairly high functioning on the spectrum. So my diagnosis was Asperger's syndrome and um, not level one autism like it would be today. Um, if I were to receive a diagnosis today, I would receive a diagnosis of level one autism. And um, that would be uh, a little bit of a difference. And the, the problem with that is, um, uh, my opinion on that is that I spent a lot of time and a lot of years after I was diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome, learning how to adapt to having Asperger's syndrome, embracing it, um, being told that it was a part of who I am in counseling and from my parents and my family, and my friends, it was just a part of who I am. And I was really learning how to embrace it and accept it. Um, and then all of a sudden, about the time that I started to really accept it and love myself for who I was, um, they wanted to take that diagnosis away in the DSM-5 and make it level one autism. So a lot of people with Asperger's syndrome, we like to identify as Aspies. And um, unfortunately, we're having a hard time doing that now because they're not diagnosing Aspies anymore. Um, and they're taking the diagnosis away and making it so um, it's very it's just, it's not the same as it was when we were getting diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. So that's a very important thing. And just something to keep in mind is that today you're dealing with um, level one autism as opposed to Asperger's syndrome diagnosis. So um, that was my thoughts on that. So um, sensory overload, I want to talk a little bit about sensory overload. So I have a book that I wrote, it's called Autism Sensory Overloaded by Emotions. Um, and it talks about all the stuff we're gonna talk about today in more detail. Um, we're all familiar with sensory overload. We often think in terms of physical sensations or sensory inputs or outputs. Temple Grandin's hug machine for squeezing. 
Temple Grandin liked to be squeezed like that pressure, right? Um, but she didn't like people squeezing her or hugging her or being around people. Um, and so she invented the hug machine that made her more comfortable. And it really, when she got overloaded, she would go into that hug machine and just like get squeezed and feel so much better and relaxed. Um, so there's lots of sensory toys and activities out there today. There's a company called sensorycritters.com and a few other companies that I'm aware of that make toys and like little sensory objects for people. Um, and then sensory issues. So sensory issues can be taste, touch, smell, sight, and et cetera. All the different senses you can think of that normal people, people without, sorry, normal people is a bad word. Um, people um, without autism experience, neurotypical people um, experience then autistic people are going to experience as well. We're just going to experience them on a more magnified level of things, um, in my opinion. So there can also be emotional senses. Emotional sensory overload. A few years ago, I discovered that I get overloaded emotionally when interacting with others. I pick up on their emotions in magnified ways sometimes. Sometimes I don't pick up on their emotions at all. This works in extremes. I either pick up on their emotions too much or not enough. So I'm very black and white in everything that I do. And when I am trying to read someone or like interact with them and read their emotions, like I find that I either am like really, really intent with their emotions, like almost having like the, what's that term we use, ESP? Um, having like ESP with them where I'm able to read their emotions and just imagine or figure out what they're talking about or what they're, what they're feeling um, and or I'm not in tune with them at all and I'm on a completely different channel. I'm not in tune with the fact that they're upset or they're happy or I can't read their emotions at all. So I go back and forth um, and I either overreact to their emotions or I underreact to their emotions. So what that means is for me, um, my emotional response to their emotional response is either gonna be over the top and like too high for their emotional response or it's gonna be under their emotional response and not really, they're not gonna notice that I'm having an emotional response because I'm not gonna have one, right? So I will have no emotional response to their emotions. Um, and therefore, we talk about context a lot. So context is king. Um, it's very important, I think, social context. So my social response to their emotional response is gonna be out of context with what it should be because if I'm having an emotional response that's over the top, then my social response is going to be over the top as well. We'll talk about some examples through that and then coming slides here. I often find myself picking up on others' emotions too intently, like I talked about. This causes me to get overloaded and melt down. For here's an example. So my friend's father passed away and I tried to like make her feel better. And like in my mind, I was like saving her from her emotions because I thought that she was very distraught and very sad and very hurt. And she was sad and she was distraught, but um she wasn't as sad as I made her out to be. Um, and so she's better at coping, uh, coping with things than I am sometimes. And so, um, you know, she's very, um, she was sad, she was distraught. And I was like, oh my gosh, what do I do? I knew she was sad, but I thought she was like over the top sad. So I started like feeling like I needed to send her flowers. But what do I do? Because I'm very black and white. I feel like, oh my gosh, I have to send her flowers, dozen roses every single day until she feels better. So like I started on Monday, dozen roses, Tuesday, dozen roses. And I wanted to do that. Um, I didn't actually do it because I didn't have the money, um, money to invest at the time into doing it. But that would be my emotional response was that I wanted to send her a dozen roses every single day until she felt better. And then the other thing that I wanted to do for her 
was I wanted to like um, cook dinner for her or buy her dinner out somewhere every single day. Like I didn't want her to have to cook a meal at all because I wanted to make sure she was taken care of and didn't have any needs during that time. So I was like over picking up on her emotion um, and my emotions were going over the top, which caused me my social responses, which would be the sending the flowers and the, um, you know, sending the flowers and preparing meals for her every single day were out of context with what her emotions were. And so like, I was going to be way over the top. It was going to be awkward. It was going to be weird, creepy, whatever you want to use the word there. Um, but it was just going to be out of context with her emotions. Um, so like I said, I wanted some flowers every day, text every day, provide meals to my friend every day. Um, I had no casual way of showing my support for my friend. I was overloaded by emotions. Emotional sensory overload, underload. Emotional sensory underload. So this happens when I don't pick up on someone's emotions at all. There could be something terribly wrong and I don't understand there's something wrong. Someone might have had a bad day, but I don't realize it. And I don't respond to the person's emotions. This makes me a bad friend. I'm unaware of others' emotions. So like I talk about all the time, I'm very black and white. So I'm either having this insanely like intense response to someone's emotions uh, or I'm not having a response to them at all. I'm not picking up on the fact that they're emotional at all. Um, and that's very, very troublesome and very difficult to deal with as well. Emotional sensory overload versus underload. Many autistic people are black and white thinkers. For me, this means I get overloaded or underloaded with input. This means I am either over-responding to friends and family members' emotions or under-responding to them. There are no in-betweens. I think in terms of zero to 60 every single day of my life, black or white, no ability to grasp a great concept. Matching emotions with others. It is hard for me to feel the same emotions as my peers. For one, I'm often wrong about their emotions. I'm often guessing wrong. Two, I'm unsure of how to match my emotional responses with their emotions. And I also struggle to match my emotions with socially appropriate responses to events. And this all goes back to the context thing that we talked about. So like your social response socially appropriately has to match up with your friend's emotions. So like if I'm sitting a dozen roses and my friend's like only sad on a scale of two out of 10, my dozen roses is probably gonna be like a response, a social response to a level of 10 out of 10 emotion of sadness. And so I'm gonna be out of context my social response is gonna be out of context with my friend's emotions. Um, like I said, I would always bring a dozen roses on a first date because I thought that was the emotion you should be feeling on a date. So I always thought that like your, you know, your emotions, um, like for a first date or like, I like you, I wanna to get to know you, I, I think you're pretty, I want it to be romantic. Like I thought, I thought it was a date, so it had to be romantic. And I thought in order to make it romantic, I visualized flowers, candles, wine, those types of things. Um, and when it comes down to it socially, the first date's not really supposed to be romantic, as romantic as we make it, we, we make it out to be. So Hollywood makes it out to be a super romantic thing, right? So a lot of times people with autism, myself included, will be watching Hollywood videos or movies in Hollywood. And we will be like picking up on those little tips that they give off in the movies where it's a romantic first date and then we live happily ever after after the first date and things like that. And, you know, that's just all fun and dandy, but that's not real life. And that's not how the world works. 
Um, to be more in moderation and more socially appropriate, I should have brought one rose, but I either brought a dozen or zero. Again, all or nothing thinking, zero to 60 black or white thinking. Um, zero, one rose, zero rose, either zero roses or 12 roses. Um, I couldn't do anything in between. Um, a dozen roses made it feel like a date to me. So again, 12 roses, oh, it's a date with 12 roses. Anything less than 12 roses, zero roses, for example, is not a date. And then like we have to talk about generalizing and applying. So I could go in between in my brain. This is how my brain thinks with autism visually. So I could go in between if I went with like 10 roses, for example, for a first date, um, those 10 roses, I could either generalize up or generalize down, but I would either have to label them as a date or an acquaintance or just hanging out with an acquaintance. Um, so I would label that time we spent together hanging out as either a date or just time spent with my acquaintance. Um, I couldn't, I'd have a very difficult time thinking in the gray areas of life and labeling that as, um, labeling that as like just casual friends hanging out or coworkers hanging out or things like that. And so I would just think of it either as a date or a friend or acquaintance hanging out. Um, and it could be, I tend to generalize, I used to generalize up on everything. So if I would have brought 10 roses, I would have generalized up to thinking it was 12 roses. So it would have been a date to me at 10 roses. Um, it would have been a date. Um, even four roses, I would have generalized up because I always overgeneralized up um, until I learned that that was really creepy and really awkward. And people assume, when you assume that you're on a date and you're just hanging out with someone, a woman will find that very creepy and very awkward. Uh, it'll be an awkward situation for her. And so I started generalizing down then. And I, now I overgeneralize down. So for example, it takes me 12 roses to feel like I'm on a date. If I bring 12 roses, I know I'm labeling it as a date and I'm on a date with someone. Um, but if I bring anything less than 12 roses, if I bring 11 roses now, I generalize, overgeneralize down. Um, and so 11, if I were to bring 11 roses, it would mean that I was just hanging out with an acquaintance um, or anything less than that, like two roses, five roses, seven roses, nine roses. Um, it would just be like hanging out with an acquaintance and things like that. And so there wouldn't be a date involved in that situation. Um, it's hard for me to feel the same emotions as my peers, like I said. Um, and we're continuing on to the next slide, overgeneralizing. We talked a little bit about that, but I often overgeneralize my emotions to meet others' emotions. If someone is sad, I overdo it and feel they are very sad. If someone is happy, I overdo it and feel like they are extremely happy. Neurotypicals are often somewhere in the middle, though. I don't have a middle ground. So someone might be happy on a scale of, on an eight out of 10 scale. And I would think they were on a 10 out of 10 on a scale. So like, um, say they're happy, say you're happy on a scale of one to 10, you enter your level eight. Um, to me, I would interpret that at level 10 because I can only see and recognize level one or level zero at the bottom level, um, whatever that be zero or one, whatever scale you're using or the top level, level 10, I can't recognize levels two through nine. So I don't recognize if you're just kind of happy or a little bit happy. I only see if you're like really, really, really sad or really, really, really happy. Um, and that makes social life, navigating emotional responses to people, navigating the social world, that makes it very challenging for me 
because a lot of times neurotypicals, like a lot of people are not that extremely black and white. Now with autism, I'm, I'm very black and white. So I'm either, oftentimes, I'm either really, 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 really happy, like a level 10, or really, 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 really sad, like a level one. Um, I'm not often in the middle, I like level five or level three. So it's kind of like a bipolar experience for me. Um, and like I said earlier, I am kind of diagnosed with bipolar a little bit. Um, so that does make a lot of sense in terms of, you know, what's going on in my life. Um, but yeah, so um, like I said, uh, neurotypicals are often somewhere in the middle. I don't have a middle ground. Um, someone might be sad on a two on a scale and I could think they were sad on a level one. So happiness, sadness, um, I, you get to just the idea. So I'm going to be guessing wrong on where they're at. And therefore, because my emotional response, because my guess about where they're at emotionally is wrong, I'm mind blinded. So mind blindness is a term we use a lot in autism, but I experience mind blindness to the idea that of where they're at emotionally. And therefore my social response is inappropriate because my emotional response to their emotions is out of context with their emotional response. So because sum that up, because my emotional response is out of context with their, my friend's emotions, my social response is gonna be out of context with what it should be for my friend's level of emotion, okay? Very important, very important. Now, I have an argument here, um, and I feel like oftentimes, um, Autistic people, we get a bad rep for having bad social skills. And in my opinion, my experience, that's not always the case. So well, think about this. If your emotional response is so out of context with your friend's emotions, and you are then forming a social response to what emotion you think your friend is feeling, then of course you're gonna have bad social skills because your social response to your friend's emotion is way out of context with what it should be. And therefore you're not, um, your social skills are inappropriate because you're doing things like sending a dozen roses when you should be like, just saying, hi, how are you? Um, and making sure your friend's okay and things like that. So nine times out of 10 with Asperger's syndrome and higher functioning levels of autism, let's, let's start to think that it might not always be a social skills deficit, but it could be a social thinking deficit. And we'll talk about social thinking a few slides down the road, but it could be a social thinking deficit and it could be a, um, you know, how you're interpreting sensory overload, emotional sensory overload deficit. It could be how you're interpreting your friend's emotions that is causing you to form these bad social responses that make you appear to have bad social skills. When in reality, your social skills are fine. It's just your emotions are telling you to use the wrong social skills. And then it just creates this chain reaction and this chain cycle over and over and over again with each social relationship, um, things like that. So I always, like I said, I see happiness at either a level one or level 10. Um, emotional overload leads to autistic burnout. So this is a very, 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 very important subject here. Um, autistic burnout is something we don't talk about enough in the autism community. Many of us autistic adults are starting to speak out about it, and talk about it about how we feel overloaded by this burden to mask and this burden to be someone we're not. Um, and it's very exhausting for us. So autistic burnout, I find that being overloaded by other people's emotions is exhausting, right? So I'm constantly trying to determine how others feel. This causes me to get overloaded myself and feel autistic burnout. How do others naturally process emotions of others? 
I can become agitated and have meltdowns when not understanding emotions properly. So what is autistic or not to me? Like I talked about, it's when you're masking, it's when you're at a job, it's not really meant for you or you're not really feel like it's a good fit for you. So you're pretending to like it. Um, and you're just like trying to, um, you know, experience that job and do the job the best you can, but it's exhausting because you don't like the job. So very important autistic people, we like to like our jobs. Um, everybody likes to like their jobs, right? But autistic people, very important that we like our jobs, our careers, because if not, we'll experience burnout, in my opinion. So masking, being in the wrong job, those th two things that will cause autistic burnout, especially for me. Autistic burnout is when the processing system just shuts down. So it has been overworked and overloaded. Uh, too much time trying to read other people's emotions. Uh, what kinds of other things cause autistic burnout? We talked a little bit about that in the last slide. I'm asking, working a job, um, it's not appropriate for you. Socializing is a big one too, right? So it's very exhausting for people with Asperger's and then the socializing. Um, again, I wanna make a point, especially for me, not because I'm not social, not because I don't know how to socialize, but because of the socializing, you're constantly having to read and process other people's emotional response. You're constantly having to figure out their emotions by reading their body language, their nonverbal communication, and all of the above, and all of those things as well. So it's very, 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 very important that we um, get some get some work on social emotional processing so that we can interpret other people's emotions and build those friendships appropriately and have the appropriate social responses to our friends and our peers. Autistic burnout continued. So masking is a major component of autistic burnout. Imagine trying to spend your whole day reading others' emotions. Sometimes, you're, sometimes you forget that you even have emotions yourself because you are trying to understand someone else's emotions all day long. Um, you never get to be who you are when masking. So what is masking? Um, masking is pretending to be someone you aren't to conform to societal rules and please others. People mask when they convince themselves they cannot be accepted for who they are. Masking is exhausting and crucial, a crucial contributor to autistic burnout as discussed earlier. People who mask often develop comorbid mental health conditions. Common comorbid mental health conditions include, but are not limited to anxiety, depression, bipolar, schizoaffective disorder, and obsessive compulsive disorder. Common comorbid conditions continued. So it does appear that the most common comorbid mental health conditions are anxiety and depression, with anxiety thought to be currently the most prominent coexisting condition. Autistic people are also more likely to commit suicide. Now, why is that? Suicide is a big deal in the autism community. So depression. Many people with autism, especially those without intellectual disability, those with intellectual disability well as well, but those without any cognitive intellectual disability will experience depression because they are more aware of their differences and more aware of how different we are socially. So imagine trying to read someone else all day long. What does their smile mean? What does their frown mean? And what does the facial expression mean in general? What does their body language say? And why don't they just say what they mean? Um, if you live in a world that you don't understand and one doesn't understand you, we become exhausted and depressed. So how do I overcome sensory emotion deficit? Um, 
I love to read count. I have read countless books on emotions and trying to understand others. I ask my friends and family a lot of questions to determine that emotion, the emotion they are feeling. I used to never ask questions and guess, guess what? I always guess wrong, right? Um, and that led to the emotional response being out of context with their emotion. And then my social response being out of context with their emotions again. So um, I learned to think in pictures. Um, a smile means happy. And I train myself with different smiles to recognize them to be happy. So I worked on different levels of smiles with social stories um, and, and visualizing different smiles. So I basically would take, I'm in the process of learning this now actually. So I'm taking different pictures of different people's smiles. And then I'm like labeling them, are they level one, level two happiness, level three happiness, level four, level five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And then like deciding, well, what might they be feeling if they're at level two, what might they be feeling if they're at level eight and level 10 and so on. So I'm trying to think of pictures, I'm trying to use social stories, I'm trying to use all those different tools to learn how to experience different levels of emotions that are in the gray area, levels two through nine, so that I can interpret those a little bit better, right? Um, So I train myself with different smiles to recognize them, like I said, and I've done the same with the frowns or sad faces. So again, same thing, level of sadness instead of level of happiness. But level of sadness, I will look at pictures of people's faces that are sad and then try and decide, well, what level of sadness are that? Are they level one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten? And then determining what level they're at, I will decide and try and interpret and write a social story about how sad they are and what I think they might be feeling and things like that. So that's very important as well. Um, I asked for honest and direct communication. I've learned to ask my friends and family for honest and direct communication. If my response to something they're feeling feels inappropriate to them, I ask to be notified of it. I then ask for an explanation as to why someone feels the way they do. Then I try to put that explanation in my brain as a reference point in the gray area of life. That way I don't just keep overgeneralizing, but can generalize to another spot. So instead of overgeneralizing to level one or level 10, I'm now able to learn how to generalize to level two, level nine, and I'm getting better at going down to levels three, four, five, six, seven, and eight. Um, it's gonna take some time, it's gonna be hard to learn. It's, it's a learning curve, it's a learning process. We have to teach the different levels of emotions. And I think, in my opinion, once we teach people with autism different levels of emotions and get us to think in more gray areas of thinking, um, and more gray areas of concepts of conceptualization, that our social skills will match those levels. I think the social skills are there, guys. I just don't think we know how to access the social skills because we're not feeling the right emotional response to someone in, in these social situations. So very important. Um, if their explanation is at a level six out of 10, it helps me generalize to a six instead of a 10, one or a 10. The problem is that there are more than 10 different emotional response levels. So there's an infinite number of them. I just use, I happen to use level one through level 10 as an example for you guys. So you can learn and understand the experience here. Um, but like I said, there's an infinite, you guys know this, there's an infinite level of emotions that someone can feel for any given experience in their life. So. This is just an example, level one through level 10, but we really have to be complex and be concrete 
and break things down in micro steps for our folks on the spectrum. So that's very important. Meltdowns. So what causes autistic meltdowns? Lots of things, but we can usually sum it all up to some type of overload that is often sensory overload. Now, in my opinion, that can be physical sensory overload, feeling uncomfortable, like you're, you're being, your skin is being invaded, you're being attacked by something, um, or it can be emotional sensory overload where you're just so overloaded by trying to process someone else's emotions that I melt down. Um, so like I said, it can be physical or sensory, emotional sensory overload. So how do we prevent autistic meltdown? Well, we use social stories to talk about emotional states. For me, because a lot of my emotional meltdowns are emotional sensory related because I'm not understanding my peers' emotions and therefore I'm having the wrong social response to them and that causes me to feel upset at myself, disappointed in myself and melt down. Um, and therefore, uh, now we're gonna talk about, um, you know, that we're, we're just having the wrong social response. Um, and I do wanna say though, before we go on, I asked this question, I posed this question here, you know, how do we prevent meltdowns? So I don't think we actually prevent autistic meltdowns. Um, I think we make a mistake if we try and prevent them uh, because I think they're a natural occurrence in life. Everybody has burnout, everybody has meltdowns, everybody gets overloaded. Autistic people just like to experience it more due to their life experiences. Um, meltdowns are gonna happen. I think we, we miss the learning curve when we try to prevent the meltdown. Um, what we can do is work on helping someone process the meltdown, helping someone through the meltdown, and helping someone like live their best life even during a meltdown. So like a lot of times like people say, well, you don't work on social skills during a meltdown. I'm the opposite for me. I like to work on my social skills when I'm having a meltdown because if I don't work on them in the context of when I'm having a meltdown, then I'm not going to be able to get through the meltdown because I'm not going to be able to use my social skills and my repertoire to reach out to other people for help or to just do what I need to do to get through the meltdown because I've never practiced it in the context of when I'm having a meltdown. So guys, I'm telling you, when people with autism are having meltdowns, it's the perfect time to practice those social skills, um, in my opinion. So we use social stories to talk about emotional states. We help people understand the different emotions they might be feeling during meltdown and helping them understand the emotions of others that they might experience um, feeling during a meltdown. And then I use social stories to train my brain to respond to different emotions. Um, I'm working on, you haven't noticed I'm a big fan of social stories. Um, and this is recent, this is, has always been the case. This is just something I came across lately to where I found that it helps me and it works for me is to work on those um, social stories to practice different emotional states and learn about emotions. So I use social stories to learn social thinking, to process emotions, to learn how to have appropriate social responses to my peers. All right, so social stories. Um, social stories help me because they give me a visual image to visualize. I think in pictures like temple, if I can see an image in my brain, then I am able to analyze it. In analyzing it, I am able to process the different emotional states. I may never have perfect emotional responses to my friends and family, but does anyone ever have a perfect response? I'm getting better at responding to my friends and family's emotions. Avoiding fixations on the extremes. This is a very, very, very important slide. Um, we're gonna talk about fixations. Transition here to another book that I've written called Autism Fixations, 
obsessions and special interests. So fixating is very, very important. Um, like anyone else, I like to be comfortable. These dreams are very comforting for me because I understand the black and white. So level, level one is very comfortable. Level 10 is very comfortable. Levels two through nine are not so comfortable for me. Uh, I understand black and white. Gray area is not comfortable. I fixate on the black and white area. That means if I respond to the level 10 and I'm over-responding, I'm fixated on over-responding. So that's where we run into like not just a dozen roses one day to my friend, but a dozen roses seven days a week every single day because I'm fixated on sending a dozen roses. Um, and if I'm fixated on level one and under-responding, under then I'm fixated on level one and I'm not responding at all, which likely means I'm actually fixated on something else and I'm not even able to process it. there's a problem. Someone else is having an emotional breakdown. Um, I'm ignoring the situation and I'm missing out on that opportunity to help comfort them. Encouragement to grow. Like anyone else, I just need encouragement to grow and stop fixating. Trying new things is amazing. I love to try new things. So even if I'm fixating, you can interrupt me and be like, Travis, redirect me and be like, Travis, we need to try this. We need to focus on this for a little bit, things like that. Um, I'm shy and I like to have positive encouragement from friends and family. I make overgeneralizations daily, but my social stories help me break them down. And I am learning how to find different parts of the gray spectrum. Please encourage gray thinking patterns and gray thinking processes. It's very important that autistic people, we learn how to like think and comprehend gray concepts and gray areas in life. Um, that couldn't be more important in my opinion. Teach social stories so that gray thoughts develop and define the gray areas. So it's very important for me, like if you're feeling an emotion at level six, for example, and I'm not able to process it, and I think you're at level 10 or level one, please take the time to explain to me what you're feeling at level six so that I can define it, visualize the image of what you're feeling, and then store it within my brain so that I have it for the future reference. Fixations, obsessions, or special interests. Uh, transitioning to the fixations, obsessions, and special interests part of this presentation. What's a fixation? Well, a fixation is a very intense obsession that has probably become unhealthy to the point to where you fixate on it so much that you don't function in other areas of your life. You've stopped going out with your friends. You've stopped hanging out with people. You've just fixated on whatever you're fixated on. Now, this can actually lead you to hang out with people because sometimes, I will tell you, you can develop a fixation on a people or a specific person. And that is very unhealthy for both people, you and the person you're fixated on. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later at a later time. Um, an obsession is something that everyone experiences, right? So even typical people, neurotypical people, often experience um, these obsessions. Um, and it's just an intense interest. It's a, it's a passion. It's something that you're really, really into. Um, and um, it's, it's not unhealthy usually because you're not like, it doesn't interfere, it's not to the level to that it interferes with the quality of life. So it's not to the, level, to the level where you're doing it so much that you're skipping work, you're calling in sick to work, or you're missing school, or you're missing family gatherings, and things like that. So an obsession might be something that is healthy for you, um, and you're just more into it than other people might be. Um, a special interest, 
So special interest, in my opinion, is something similar to a fixation, but the difference is it's healthy and it's actually used as a coping mechanism to help you get through some of your daily life challenges with autism. So special interest is common, might be Thomas the Train, we're all familiar with that, um, where someone uses Thomas the Train as a coping skill to get through the day at school or get through the workday. Um, it, it, it's healthy. Um, it can help you keep your job. It can help you get through school. Um, it can be used by escaping into imagination. You create a make-believe world with it um, and help you process the real world. Um, and the special interest can be a good thing. Now, the special interest, we have to watch this because the special interest can quickly become a fixation. And when the special interest becomes a fixation, then we run into the problems where special interest is now unhealthy and we need to look at replacing the special interest with a different interest or working on modifying that fixation to bring it back down to our just a special interest level. Um, and, you know, not as big a deal. So special interest can be places, history things, uh, roller coasters, uh, trumps the train, people, special interest can be people. So um, special interests are great coping skills when practiced in moderation. Um, and monitored by support staff and family and friends. Uh, fixating can lead to a melting, melting down. So sometimes my ability to fixate on something can be good and or bad. If I fixate on something positive, then good things can happen from it. If I fixate on something negative and my mental health can be impacted, then my mental health can be impacted and the negative things can occur. Positive fixations lead to good mental health for me, in my opinion. Um, negative fixations lead to negative mental health, bad mental health. Vice versa, if you're in a mental health situation where there's chemical imbalance, bad mental health can lead to negative fixations. Um, and good mental health can lead to great fixations or positive fixations. Very important there, in my opinion. So a positive fixating might be working a job. You might be fixating on working your job or um, you know, like going to school for whatever you're getting a bachelor's degree, you could be fixating on something positive that's going to better your life. A negative fixation, an example, might be focusing on sexuality too much. And that's a true story from my life, an example from my life. We'll talk about later on in the presentations. Um, so breaking the fixation. Um, how do we help someone who fixates on something negative? We introduce new topics of interest to see if there is interest. Try to modify how much time is spent fixating. Set a schedule and give me a certain time each day that I can fixate on my fixation. So I'm very big on schedules of reinforcement and schedules. Um, if you can give me a time frame each day where I can have the 20 minutes to focus on my fixation or my special interest um, and let me really dive into it and just live it out and escape into my imagination, create my make-believe world, where me and the fixation are coexisting and we're all happy. Um, that's great. And it helps me um, get that coping mechanism that I need to come back out into the real world and live um, the rest of the day in the real world, in the world that you live in, and help you um, connect with me in that world. So if you can, the trick is, guys, if you can, I always teach people, if you can escape into my imagination with me, focus on my special interest or fixation with me for a few minutes, then it's going to connect with me there, pull me out into your world, and I'm going to be able to focus on things that you want me to focus on in your world. So escape into imagination with me. I have a couple of books on that teaches that process. 
escape into imagination, rhythmically connect with me in my world, and then um, come out, bring me out into your world, and help me connect with you in your world. Uh, beware of meltdowns of trying to lessen the fixation. You have these things called extinction bursts. Um, they happen, we'll talk about applied behavior analysis a different day, but um, extinction bursts happen when you're trying to lessen a behavior. Um, they're not reinforcing behavior. Um, and then it just becomes an extinction burst where the more you try and focus on the, eliminating the behavior, the more I'm gonna exhibit the behavior for a little bit. Um, and that's very important to know as well. So sometimes I just need to fix it. I think we all as human beings just need to fix it sometimes. And that's important. Meltdowns aren't always triggered by what you think. So many folks think a meltdown is triggered by an event that occurred immediately before the meltdown. I find this almost never to be true for me. Meltdowns might be triggered by an event that happened weeks ago. They could even be triggered by a chain of events that happened a long time ago. Many of us are looking for instant or immediate antecedent to see where what triggered the meltdown. Therefore, we almost always miss the true reason for the meltdown. Autistic people, we will guide you to the reason for the meltdown. So we often ask the wrong question. Many ask me how to prevent meltdowns. Instead, we should be asking how to help someone through a meltdown. We don't prevent people from getting upset. Everyone gets upset in their lives. It's how we cope with that anger that makes all the difference. We must learn to embrace the meltdown and help our loved ones through it. Love and respect. So when someone with autism is having a meltdown, or anyone in general is upset and having a meltdown, how do we help them? Well, in my opinion, we should be loving and respectful to them and help them through that meltdown. Don't always try and eliminate that meltdown because it's just a part of life. And it's a part of processing our emotions and getting through our daily lives, right? So there are two main things that help me through a meltdown. When people are loving and respectful to me, it is very helpful. It's likely to end the meltdown sooner rather than later. It's a person-centered approach. Connection is the key. And love and respect make me feel connected. Escaping into my imagination with me. This is very important. A couple of books that I've written on this topic are very important books to read. Um, but um, how do you connect with me? Well, you take time and escape into my imagination with me. By escaping into my imagination, you enter my world, connect with me in your world, and connect with me in your world. So like I mentioned earlier, by escaping into my imagination with me, coming into my make-believe world, uh, you grab me, you pull me into your world, and help me process the social world around us. Um, so if you really want to help someone with autism with social skills, try escaping into their imagination with them, connecting with them in their world, and then teach social skills. Um, or we transfer them. So let's first try teaching social skills in the make-believe world that we're in, um, the social world that we create in our minds, and then let's transfer and apply them in the real world, generalize and apply them. So that's very important. I need to be connected with my world so I can connect to you in your world. Once I'm connected with you, once I'm connected with you in my world, I can begin to process my thoughts and feelings in the real world or your world. This allows me to process my meltdown in real time in the real world. Um, I must be able to have meltdowns in my make-believe world first, then have you help me by connecting with me in my world. Then I can process my thoughts and feelings in the real world. Very important. 
How do you connect with me in my robot? I teach connection through the special interest. If you want to help me with the meltdown, you must know what my special interests are. Use the special interest when entering my make-believe world and connecting with me. The special interest is likely soothing or calming to me and can help me process my thoughts and feelings and emotions. Think hard about social context and social stories. How do we use the special interest in the make-believe world and then come out into the real world and begin contextually, contextually use and begin to contextually use the special interest in the same way in the real world as we did in the make-believe world. So basically what that's saying, like I mentioned earlier, escape into imagination with me in the make-believe world, connect with me there, then grab me and bring me into the real world, your world, and practice social, use a special interest in the real world. So let's first use a special interest in my make-believe world that I create, and then let's learn how to generalize and apply and use a special interest as a coping mechanism in our make in the real world that I'm going to be living in with you. Communication is key. Uh, I recommend trying to find social stories that are relatable to an autistic person's um, make-believe world or imaginary world or special interests. Match, match those social stories contextually to something from the real world. So um, this is very hard to do, but can be done. If you think about Thomas the Train, for example, you would tell a social story about Thomas the Train in the make-believe world when escaping into their imagination with them. And then you'd bring them into the real world by telling them a story about riding a real train. Um, and I've ridden real trains and they're really awesome. And I love Thomas the Train, but I also love riding a real train. So that's very helpful for me to think of that, pictures like that. Connection is also key. Maybe someone's having a meltdown about riding a train, for example. So you'd enter their world through Thomas the Train, then connect with them in their world. Then you tell social stories about riding a real train in real life. Try to make them both as contextually related as possible. Some setting, same setting, same people, same setting, same people, same background, same story, etc. Same context. All right. Now we're going to get into talking about social thinking a little bit. Um, and this is kind of an important subject. We use social thinking to understand social context. We also use social thinking to understand and process people's emotions and process their emotional response, they're, how they're feeling on a scale of one to 10 that we talked about earlier. So we use social thinking to determine what social response to use to match someone's emotional feelings, if that makes sense. Social thinking is a major component to life. Many autistic people struggle with this. Think of this as social and emotional competencies. It goes back to what we talked about earlier with sensory emotions. It's all relatable, guys. Um, I interpret social thinking as how I think and process the social world around me. So how do I interpret social skills that other people are using and then apply my own social skills to interact with them? So how do I, social thinking for me is about how I understand two things. How I understand one, emotionally what my friends are thinking. And then, and then two, how I understand socially how they're communicating what they're thinking. Um, and, and when I focus on those two things, and I really have to focus on understanding the context of what they're thinking and feeling. And by doing that, you're focusing on the facial expression, the body language, the hand gestures, the nonverbal cues, tone of voice, all those things. Um, and when focused on all those things, I'm learning the context of what they're thinking and feeling. And I'm using social thinking to determine all those things. 
Uh, Michelle Garcia Winner is the mother of social thinking. She's authored several books. Um, one of those is Socially Curious and Curiously Social. Some other great books she's written. How to Talk to Friends is one of those books. Uh, she has an entire website, socialthinking.com. And social thinking is directly related to social context for me. Like I mentioned, social thinking is what gives me my ability to understand and interpret the social context of what I'm experiencing. Social thinking and social context. I use social thinking skills to interpret the social context of social situations I'm in. What is the context of what someone is saying? In order to understand the context of what they are saying, I must first use social thinking to interpret their facial expressions and body language. Without the nonverbal communication, I am missing at least 50% of the context to what they're saying or meaning. Context is king. Peter Garrett says that. He's a phenomenal behavior analyst. Uh, and then a couple of stories to hear about social context. Um, people with intellectual disabilities were taught to use a condom by placing it on a banana instead of a penis. Um, very common situation. So what do they do when it comes time to actually put the condom on the penis when they're having sex? Well, they look for the banana and they put the condom on the banana. And then we have a whole mess of things going on. Um, now, why do they do that? Not because they don't know, not because they didn't know they should put a con use a condom, but because they were taught how they were taught contextually to put the condom on the banana. So we concretely we taught them wrong. So therefore they're using the wrong skill because we taught the wrong skill out of context. Um, another story, autistic woman grew up, mom and dad told her she couldn't get pregnant until she got married. Um, and so she took it literally and um, unfortunately didn't believe she could possibly get pregnant physically, scientifically until she got married. Um, so she didn't think to use any protection or didn't realize that she would need to use any protection when having intercourse. And next thing you know, she's pregnant. So those are two examples of how social context, social thinking errors led to social mishaps um, that complicated life for someone. <clears throat> social thinking helps me understand social context. So I use social thinking concepts to help me understand social context. Context is king is so true. It's a, for, I mean, it's the closest thing to the truth that I know. You've got to practice context. You've got to be literal. you got to be concrete with me. Um, social thinking helps me realize that someone is serious or joking. Literal thinking. I'm very literal, like I said. Uh, social thinking involves analyzing nonverbal communication for me. So tone of voice, facial expression, hand gestures, and body language like we talked about. Social thinking is a spectrum of things, all right? So social thinking has a spectrum, just like autism is a spectrum. There's a friendship to acquaintance ratio, friendship spectrum. There's also a friendship spectrum. Everything is on a spectrum to me. So um, acquaintances versus friendship. Now, when I think of these spectrums, I have this line segment, two arrows on the end of it. Um, on the left side is acquaintance. On the right side is best friend or boyfriend, girlfriend, intimate. Right side is intimate, intimacy. Um, now, on that spectrum, I often focus, I'm not, I, either on the left side or the right side. I have a hard time being in the middle because of the great thinking, right? So, um, 
it's very hard for me to understand how someone can be friends and boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, so I'm either thinking we're either boyfriend and girlfriend and not friends, or we're friends but not boyfriend and girlfriend. I have a hard time processing how the two can go together. That creates some confusion for me. Um, like I said, we have the issue of friends versus more than friends. How can two people be friends and lovers? Well, friendship and dating is part of the same spectrum. So on, again, that's a different spectrum. But on the left side here, we've got friendship. On the right side here, we've got dating. But again, I'm very black and white. So we're either friends or we're either dating. Um, and everything's a spectrum. So if it's acquaintances versus friends, we're either acquaintances or we're friends. There's no in between. If it's friendship versus dating, we're either friends or we're dating. There's no in between for me. Um, and it's just very hard to place people on that spectrum um, because in reality, in real life, everyone has the spectrum filled on different levels and different social circles. Um, and that's extremely important to fill out that spectrum as well. Gray social thinking helps us understand the friendship spectrum. So if we can learn to think gray in terms of social communication, social processing, processing people's emotions, social thinking, if we can think and process gray information coming in, we'll be able to more likely fill that social circle and fill that spectrum on different levels so that we have a more well-rounded spectrum of, of different types of friendships and social relationships. The gray friendship spectrum. So discussion on the gray friendship spectrum of things, um, most people have social relationships that are gray and somewhere in the middle of the spectrum. Very few relationships seem to be black and white with my, in my observation. Everyone wants to marry their best friend, they say. But friend zone is actually a theory. It's a real theory I've learned about in studying relationships is people have this friend zone to where they won't date people that they're friends with. Now that's really confusing to me. You might understand how that can be confusing to someone with autism when people say, well, we want to marry our best friend. But then you're telling me also that this friend zone thing exists. So like, how could you marry if you're going to place a friend in the friend zone, then how could you end up, and you're not going to date them, how could you end up marrying your friend if you're not going to date them? And you can see how my brain is just like processing all these chain reaction events and it's just really misleading information. Um, so I think the, um, in my opinion, I really think that the friend zone is an overrated theory. We, we talk a lot about it, but I do believe that many people end up getting married to their best friends. Um, and so it's, again, like I said, it's a spectrum. So we've got different levels of friendship and they, they move back and forth throughout our lives. We could, be, we could be on the left side of the spectrum one day and the right side of the spectrum the next day with someone and it's just an ever-changing cycle. False information leads to confusion. I got a lot of negative information from the internet when researching friendship and relationships. Um, never a good thing to let someone with autism just go to the internet and try to find their own solutions for this kind of thing. Um, same with sexuality, we'll talk about later. Um, and I get overloaded by all these emotions. Now, here's a funny concept. I have an entire book I wrote called The Green Dot, and it's about Facebook. Um, this is about a little bit more about social thinking. But, um, Facebook and social networking sites for autism spectrum disorder, The Green Dot, um, when someone is online for Facebook Messenger, there's a green dot next to their name. The green dot means they're online. In my mind, that means they are ready to chat. I message them and they don't respond, but the green dot says they're ready to chat. 
Literal social thinking tells me that the green dot means a person is online and ready to chat with me. I get frustrated when they don't respond and feel like they hate me. The green dot almost never actually means a person is online, guys, and ready to chat. So you could have Facebook open and be doing like 100 different things, be doing a PowerPoint presentation. Like right now, I could have Facebook open. It's going to tell you that I'm online and ready to chat. with the green dot next to my name? Well, I'm not chatting with anybody because I'm talking to you guys. Um, so uh, that green dot on Facebook is very misleading. You can't take it literal. Um, a person, like I said, could be sitting at their computer doing research, but have Facebook pulled up and the green dot would appear. And don't take offense to someone with a green dot next to their name doesn't reply to your messages. Message seen doesn't mean they've seen your message. Same concept. Facebook um, will tell you, other, other websites will tell you when someone has received your message um, or read your message. Uh, and even text messaging, sometimes iPhone to iPhone or same phone to same phone, same carrier to same carrier, we will tell you like someone has received your message or read your message. Um, guys, this is all very misleading. It's all context driven. So like, what does red mean? Well, red means like it popped up on my screen and I saw someone texted me, but I didn't really open it or read it. Um, red doesn't always mean that they read your message. Um, it's very important to teach people thoughts on this. Um, extremely important to teach them this um, because otherwise we will take it literal and feel offended or upset or hurt that you're not replying to our messages. Um, so very important, very, 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 very important to teach that these things are not always literal. They're not as black and white as we like to think they are. There's a gray area to them. So as we mentioned, Facebook tells you when someone has read your chat message, this is misleading just because Facebook puts a check mark next to the message saying that a friend has read it. The message doesn't mean they have actually read it. They could have just seen it and not read it. Or it could pop up as seen just because the person had Facebook opened up when you sent them a message. And literal social thinking causes me to believe when Facebook says message read that the person has read my message. So Facebook leads to confusion. I love Facebook, um, but it's kind of confusing sometimes for that very reason. Um, when Facebook tells me a friend has read my message and the friend doesn't reply right away, I fear that the friend is mad at me or not replying and not replying. This causes tremendous anxiety. Anxiety causes me to send my friend another message. This causes me to melt down while waiting on a reply. I escape into imagination to help me through the meltdown. So escape with me, kind of help me through the meltdown like we talked about earlier. Um, friends almost always reply as soon as they can, so I have nothing to worry about usually. Social media leads to extreme anxiety. Um, there's a lot of research out there for everyone that social media sites lead to a lot of anxiety, a lot of mental health issues. This is very true um, and no different for people on the spectrum. They can also be great tools for people on the spectrum because it takes away the nonverbal communication piece and it helps us really uh, connect with our peers and things like that. So there's good and bad to everything in life. And that's no different of social networking sites. Um, all right, now we're gonna talk a little bit here this is a very brief, mild introduction to puberty and sexuality. I have an entire presentation about puberty and sexuality that I give, uh, and this is nothing, this is like the birds and bees of puberty and sexuality. So, which is, for this presentation, it's okay. But if you're wanting to really focus on helping someone with autism through puberty and sexuality, um, the birds and bees is not gonna cut it, and you're gonna need a more, um, 
advanced version of the presentation. So we all go through it. Everyone hits puberty at one time or another in life. We like to live and experience sexuality, but we don't like to talk about it. Especially sex ed, we don't like to talk about sexuality education. This is especially true for folks with developmental and intellectual disabilities. Impossible to get research dollars from the federal government for research on sexuality education. I experienced puberty at about the same time as my peers physically, but I was later in experiencing the emotional component of puberty. I didn't have a support system to talk about sex or puberty related issues. My parents didn't touch on it. My school wasn't touching on it. I didn't have peer relationships to touch on it. So a lot of times our kids with autism or our kids in general, neurotypical kids will learn and talk about sex with their peers in middle school and high school. Um, that didn't happen for me. That's likely not happening for someone with autism. So therefore we have to find an outlet for them to learn about it. That's not the internet. It doesn't involve Google, Dr. Google. Um, like I said, so I found the internet. Um, there's a lot of bad information on the internet, guys. Um, finding information about puberty and sexuality on the internet led to me getting into a lot of bad. Let, get, led to me getting a lot of bad information that was misleading. A lot of stuff online is about fantasy or Hollywood images about sexuality and the sexual experience is all about. Um, you know, like for example, you'll meet someone first date, dozen roses, wine, candles, sex. Da -da 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 -da. Well, life doesn't work that way, um, and you know. Um, we move slower than that. Life isn't a movie. So we have to really teach the context and the realities of life. And you have to talk about this stuff with someone with autism. If you don't, we will just enact Hollywood and we'll get into all sorts of trouble. Um, therefore, when trying to put it into practice, what I was learning, when I tried to practice what I was learning online in the real world, a lot of girls and a lot of women that I interacted with thought I was creepy um, and weird. And that was a very negative experience for me. I'm a straight heterosexual man. And I thought girls had cooties until they didn't. So basically, I kind of stayed away from girls as far as like sexuality-wise. Um, I thought of them as friends. Um, they had, in my brain, they had cooties until one day I went through puberty and woke up and they didn't. And they were like attractive and I was like ready to interact. So just kind of a late bloomer. It's hard for me to distinguish between friends and boyfriend and girlfriend. We talked a little bit about that earlier when we talked about the spectrum of friendship. Um, and to me, you are either friends or you are boyfriend and girlfriend. Um, you can't be both at the same time. You can't be both friends and boyfriend and girlfriend. Two different things are labels. The gray area of how you can be friends and lovers is hard to navigate and understand. I often come on too strong because I skip steps in building social relationships. That's because I'm either I'm going from acquaintance to boyfriend and girlfriend. I'm skipping step one to step 787 or step one to step 60. We'll use that example. Skipping steps. I skip from step one to step 60 all the time. Hi, how are you? To can we go on a date? So what happened to getting to know each other? Well, I skipped that process because I moved on to step 60 instead of step two. Um, so I didn't really have a chance to get to know my friend. I tried to date her instead of getting to know her. I scared her away. Missed opportunity for friendship. Could have been a great friend. And I missed out on that opportunity because I scared her away. So super important that we teach the steps. We must teach all steps. 
teach them in the right order, and teach them concretely. All right, guys, so that's kind of where I'm at with this presentation. As you can tell, I'm still adding to it. Um, when I give this presentation, I, I will have it completed, but uh, I wanted to uh, practice this presentation and give you a little look inside of what life with autism is like for me. Um, please visit my website, tbreedauthor.com, T-B-R-E-E-D-A-U-T-H-O-R.com. Email me at travis at tbreedauthor.com. Uh, text me at 260-210-1197. I look forward to hearing from you and please check out my books. Have a fantastic day.